This is the London Live Podcast. Listen live weekdays from 1 to 3 on 980 CFPL. One of the first things to make major headlines this morning was Pfizer saying, hey, vaccine trials going well. Working in 90% of the cases so far. Still some time to go, but there's an update and it looks positive. And that's that's good. But at the same time, we're looking at a speedy vaccine here. Let's get this done as, as quickly as possible. And this is something that has been monitored closely. And it needs to be monitored closely. Because as much as everybody wants to say, get just give me something, get this done, give me the not just the light at the end of the tunnel, I want to actually see the end of the tunnel. I want to actually be able to smell the tree that is outside that tunnel. Give it to me now, I'm frustrated. And that's a completely natural way to feel. But it's important for everybody to be transparent and for us to have, in a way, individuals who watch what is going on. And one of those sources is Western's Help Lab, which is the Health Ethics Law and Policy Lab at Western. And joining us from that lab, and also someone who has been part of a new paper published by The Lancet, we happen to be lucky enough to have with us Dr. Maxwell Smith, leading expert in infectious disease ethics and health quality. Dr. Smith, thank you so much for taking some time for us today. Good afternoon. Thanks for having me on. Let's go back to the spring, because you were taking a look at the Ebola virus and vaccines there, and the Ebola virus is nothing to be messed around with, and the world wanted vaccines as quickly as possible. Can you take us back to March and some of the things that you were beginning to research? Yeah, I mean, as a starting point from an ethics uh, perspective, when we're trying to think of the right thing to do to respond to the COVID pandemic, we felt that we should really look to the past and see, you know, what did we learn from previous experiences, previous outbreaks, and maybe we can learn something from those. So we originally looked at the Ebola outbreak uh, from 2013 to 2016, which was in West Africa, and then the outbreak in the Democratic Republic of the Congo in 2018 to see what they did. And what they did was develop a novel vaccine and actually get it out to people very quickly, way quicker than we've ever seen before. And so we felt that that could be a really nice model to learn about how we might want to do this for the the COVID vaccine that we will eventually get. Because sure, we all want it fast, but at the same time, ethics needs to be followed. Can you explain the importance of ethics when we're talking about creating something that, let's face it, the world wants? Yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, we could have a very safe, very effective vaccine. But if the public doesn't trust it, and if they don't think that the decision making around the vaccine was legitimate, then they won't be willing to get it in their arms. And that would defeat the purpose of having a safe and effective vaccine. So at the same time that we're really trying to get the science right, and you can see that there's many different candidate vaccines out there, many different companies working on this, we need to make sure that on the ethics side of things, that we're doing everything in a very transparent and fair way so that when we do have an eventual vaccine, people are willing to actually take it. When we talk about this particular situation, you use the word emergency, that, yeah, emergency use, and, and you need it quickly, and you need to say, all right, let's 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 go. How rare is something like that? 
It's pretty rare. I mean, these are these sorts of uh, emergency authorizations of drugs or vaccines really only happen in the context of public health emergencies. So we saw that happen in the Ebola uh, epidemic um, a few years ago, where the vaccines that hadn't finished all of their clinical trials yet had these emergency use authorizations so that they could actually get promising vaccine candidates into the community to actually help um, prevent the spread of the disease. And it turned out that it was quite effective in doing so, and it ultimately became licensed uh, a few years later. We saw also earlier this year, the United States, they've had emergency use authorizations not for vaccines, but for therapies, for remdesivir and for hydroxychloroquine. So there's been a lot of news around this. It turns out that the emergency use authorization for hydroxychloroquine actually had to be rescinded because they found out actually there's not a lot of good evidence that it's safe and effective. So we, we really need to make sure that when we do authorize a vaccine, ultimately, in, in this emergency scenario, that we're very confident that this is going to be something that's going to be safe and effective for Canadians. Dr. Maxwell Smith joining us, a leading expert in infectious disease ethics and health quality, co-author of the Fair Allocation of Scarce Medical Resources in the Time of COVID-19, which was published earlier this year in the New England Journal of Medicine and also a part of a recent publication in The Lancet about the Ebola situation in Africa. You have looked at certain conditions that you feel should be met for emergency use. What would those conditions be? Well, we contrasted what we've seen with the Ebola vaccine emergency use authorization with the recent authorizations of a COVID vaccine in Russia and in China. And the big difference between the two is that for the Ebola vaccines, the World Health Organization was involved. There was a systematic and transparent process for evaluating those vaccines. Everyone knew what the data said. We did it in a very open and transparent manner. With the Russian and Chinese uh, COVID vaccines, there's not a lot of information about them. You've seen some of the scientific information published, but the process through which they, they actually evaluated them and listed them for emergency use is pretty opaque. And so I think that is a, a big, big difference and tells us that if we're going to do this in Canada, if we're going to have an emergency use authorization of a COVID vaccine, we need to do it like we did with Ebola. We need to make sure that it's very transparent, that the public is well aware of the process that we follow in order to authorize it, and that all of that data is available for public scrutiny. If we have that transparency, then at the end of the day, I think the public will be more willing to, to take the vaccine. And what do you think, knowing how sometimes behaviors go, knowing the pressure on getting this out, how possible would that be? I, I'm pretty optimistic, to be honest. I mean, I think, uh, like you said at the, at the outset of this, this discussion, people want to see the end of the tunnel, right? And with the news of the Pfizer vaccine potentially being 90% effective, if we're able to get our hands on that, we don't want to have a long, drawn-out regulatory process, process to get it approved and actually get those vaccines in, into arms. We want to make sure that there is over, oversight, but we want to do it as quickly as possible. So I actually think that uh, the public it would be willing to, to take such a vaccine if we do that in a transparent manner. Because what would the alternative be? We're learning so much about how a vaccine is made and how it is tested and then eventually how it is distributed if it makes it through its clinical trials. But how, how much more slowly would all of this move if we didn't have that kind of emergency element to it? Yeah, it could be a matter of months uh, difference. And, you know, we can be nimble and try to, to modify those processes. I mean, this is unprecedented territory, so you can't really rule out 
doing things differently than we've always done it. Um, but it could be a matter of months difference. And the, the other thing is that we're not necessarily just talking about one vaccine. We have over 100 in uh, vaccine candidates that are being tested. We have several in late stage clinical trials. So it may be that in 2021, we see two or three or four vaccine candidates actually being approved and distributed in a different way. So I think we just need to be nimble and creative about how we do this, but making sure that we're always transparent and making sure that the public uh, trusts whatever that that decision ultimately is. Being around the science as much as you are, do you get the sense that we're at least seeing light at the end of the tunnel? Absolutely. Yeah, I think not just on the vaccine front either. We're seeing some some promising results with those monoclonal antibodies as, as treatments. Um, we're seeing this progress on the vaccine front as a, as a preventative measure. But then just knowing how outbreaks and pandemics tend to function, I mean, they don't have an acute phase that lasts five or 10 years, right? We see that there's a general predictive number of waves and then it tends to peter out. Um, it, it might either go away in some viruses, but for a respiratory virus like this, uh, many are suggesting that it's more likely to perhaps become more seasonal, but certainly uh, it's more likely that it would become less virulent, maybe less severe to our health. So I think there's a lot of, you know, it's going to take time. We're going to have to bear, bear our teeth and, and get through this, but I think uh, there is light at the end of the tunnel. Well, we really appreciate that optimism and the information on the ethics side of things, Dr. Smith. Keep up the good work. Thanks for the time. Thank you, Mike. That's Dr. Maxwell Smith, leading expert in infectious disease ethics and health equity and the author of a recent publication in The Lancet that looked at Ebola and the way that that was handled in West Africa and in the Congo and the idea that an emergency vaccine can be put through, but you've still got to have people saying, all right, well, yeah, I'm, I'm open to that. I, I know it's being called emergency, and I know that that has helped to expedite it, but I, I'm still confident in this and so that's what they were looking into and he's somebody that is around this stuff a whole lot and he sees a light at the end of the tunnel so as much as we can say yeah we've we've got the winter months to get through and we still can't do a whole bunch of stuff that we want to do at the same time let's face it we've got an opportunity to listen to scientists who are saying look We've got a hundred vaccines that are, you know, in trials and we've got other treatments and yeah, sure. Are we further ahead than what we were? Yes. And that's what you want to be hearing. Is there reason for optimism? Yes. And that's what we want to be hearing. In the world of entertainment, we have lost not just an entertainer, but a guy that as Canadians, we were proud to say he is Canadian because of how he carried himself every day of his life. And believe it or not, if you boiled things down, Alex Trebek was, yes, a game show host. But he was more than that. He took a trivia game that aired for a half hour a night and will continue to air for a half hour a night. And he made it part of the fabric of families Families would get together. There's a call in our house. Is there a call in your house? As it's getting to be 730, you know what that call is? Jeopardy! And then wherever people are, they come running, and there we sit, 
and I like to keep score on my phone. I never, you know, I never really keep the score beyond what we're doing, but I just like to see how many we can get. Hey, look, we got 15 out of 30 in the first round of Jeopardy. That's really good. Hey, we got six in the second round because the second round tends to be a whole lot harder. And I forgot Charlemagne. I told myself I was going to remember Charlemagne again. You know how it is. Well, that's the fabric that exists in and around a trivia show hosted by an incredible Canadian. And we're going to spend some time right now and look back at the life of Alex Trebek. And the first thing that we are going to do is talk with someone from London who appeared on Jeopardy. Going back in time a little bit, but this is something that allowed her to be right front and center with Alex Trebek himself. Please welcome to London Live, Tigger Gerard. And Tigger, yesterday, of course, was not unexpected, but still, it was it was a sad day, and it's still kind of a sad moment. How are you feeling today? I'm feeling very sad as well. The news was obviously not unexpected, but still sad nevertheless. I've been thinking about Alex a lot since I heard the news yesterday. Uh, to the point where I've changed my uh, social media profile to show the picture of the two of us at, uh, that was taken during my game. Um, oh, gosh, all those years ago. I think it was 13 years ago now. We won't even count back because it seems like yesterday. <laughs> it does. It does. I actually I think about it every night when I watch the game, and I'm still watching the game faithfully. Well, I think a lot of us are, and this has been a big part of our lives. And Alex Trebek, for most of us, has been that figure on the screen, has been the host of either Jeopardy or some of us will go back to even some of his previous shows. I was a big fan of Pitfall. Always liked Pitfall. If we had a PV day and it was raining or snowing, quality show. But you got a chance to actually see Alex Trebek off camera. Can you describe him for us away from the lights? Is he any different than what we see? He is very much what we do see, but he's um, he lets more of his his quick wit come out. He's very, very quick-witted. He's very funny. Um, he's also one of the kindest, most generous people that you could ever have hoped to meet. Um, I was uh, responding to a, another comment that I heard this morning about a teacher who used to um, record the games and then play the show with her class at the end of the afternoon. And she referred to um, how he welcomed the losers. Alex never referred to them as losers. They were always the non-winners, That's which right. is just such a lovely thing to say. Yeah, and and that would just come from him, do you think? Absolutely, that would come from him. I don't know whether it's something specifically Canadian, um, I did read his uh, his memoir that he published uh, earlier in the summer. Um, it's called And the Answer Is. I highly recommend it to anyone who's interested in Alex Trebek in his own words, um, talking about his upbringing and his, his early years in Sudbury and then, you know, developing his career and coming to the U.S. and all the rest of it. And he has always, always maintained a number of things one of them is his um, his passion for education and knowledge, and he made 
he made being smart seem like something very cool and desirable, uh, which is, is quite uh, the opposite of what we've seen most recently, I think. <laughs> well um, said. Or even when so, the show debuted. I mean, you think about attitudes toward people who were smart and and when it came on the air you know it it wasn't wasn't cool to be smart now uh, with the exception of like you say uh, a certain individual you know it it has swung around a little bit where it is better to be smart now and so it's it's something that we've all kind of grown up with we're talking with Tigger Gerard Tigger is London's own and has Played on Jeopardy back in 2007. Tigger, how much interaction would contestants have had with Alex Trebek as kind of the tapings went along? There was absolutely no contact. The contestant coordinators were very, very careful to keep us all together and away from absolutely anybody else including our families. We were um, told not to make eye contact with our friends and family in the audience uh, because they're so so careful about keeping us sequestered so that there's no possibility of, you know, someone giving you an answer, uh, for example. So what you saw on camera, our interaction with Alex, either when he was behind his lectern reading out the questions or during the contestant interviews, that was the only contact that we had with the sole exception of the lineup at the very end of the game. And I was lucky enough that uh, they positioned me right next to Alex during the credits at the end. So I was able to chat with him very briefly. I think it was uh, maybe 30 seconds. Uh, certainly under a minute's worth. And I honestly don't remember what we talked about. It just didn't last long enough for me because I had so much that I wanted to ask him about. <laughs> Do you and remember like what you being... did? Do you remember what you did talk with him about? I honestly don't. I think it might have been we were talking about um, teachers, who teachers who were uh, memorable and informative uh, and how, how much of an impact they had on us. I think that was the general subject matter. Um, but I had I wanted to ask him about, uh, you know, is it true that there's always a question about Canada in every single game? That's something that I have spotted. And I'm pretty sure that there's always one question that has something to do with Canada. And I think that's put in for Alex as that's, a proud Canadian. That's great. That is amazing. It, when you think back to your boards, can you remember a question that may have had a Canadian tinge to it? Oh, gosh, that's a good one. I don't remember, but I know that there is an archive of all of the questions in all of the games going back all 30-some-odd years, um, and it's called the J Archive. And it was maintain- It was set up, and it's being maintained by one of the biggest fans of the show, whose name I don't actually know, um, but you can go back, and if you look at May 17th, 2007, you can see all of the questions in my particular game <laughs> and how, how we each did, which I think is just wonderful. Tigger Gerard joining us, a Jeopardy contestant from London. Tigger, there is a point in, in every show when Alex would go and, and talk to each contestant, and as much as 
it's one of those things that doesn't last very long and and it's one of those things that you kind of have to tell Jeopardy about and and then Alex seems to ask it back can you take us through what that is like as a contestant uh, well, you're quite right. You have to supply them with, I think it's at least five interesting things to talk about in that um, little interview portion of the show. And he spends maybe 30 seconds with us. He's, he's so good and so polished. So I submitted a few and one that he chose. And we're told that he's given all of the five uh, talking points on, on his card and he will choose the one that he thinks is most interesting. And the one that he asked me about was um, the, the sort of the lead. The headline was, I beat the British Army at darts. And it was something that happened when um, my husband and I were on our honeymoon in uh, Yorkshire. We stopped at a pub and uh, there were some people playing darts. And it, we found out later they were soldiers uh, who were um, taking a break in the evening from their exercises and uh, um, was one of the soldiers was was playing and the sergeant turned to me and handed me the darts and said here would you like to play so the two of us went up against each other and we played a round of darts and I won very narrowly <laughs> with uh, with my last dart and the capper of this one was I hadn't mentioned the gender of the soldier in my in my little chat and at the end, Alex said, uh, and you beat him? And I said, yes, I beat her. <laughs> and Alex, um, I, I, I couldn't be sure, but I thought he winked at me when I, when I said that. Uh, well, what a wonderful guy. Great story. And, uh, and we want to thank you, Tigger, for all the stories and helping us to remember just one of those people that, that just it seems to exude class and, and professionalism. And that isn't something yeah. that, that we always see in everybody. Do you feel that when he would walk onto the stage that, you know, you just feel that presence for some people? He must have had Absolutely. That. Yes, and that was genuine. He was um, first and foremost. He was he was a broadcaster, and he he knew about the importance of welcoming the audience and creating um, just a warm and inviting and enjoyable atmosphere on the show. And he just exuded it. You can hear it in the way that he would deliver bad news if the contestant got an answer wrong, and it was always supportive and, and generous and very, very helpful. And he uh, he wanted to make sure that we were all comfortable and in the best place for us to play, play at our top level in the game. And he truly loved uh, hosting. Um, and that's evident in the, in the last year, um, I think since last winter, certainly with the, uh, the games that were broadcast. He was very often in a lot of pain and discomfort from the effects of the treatment that he was undergoing. And um, I remember hearing or reading that at the most, he would take a very brief break to go backstage, compose himself, and then the taping would go on. He was a thorough, thorough professional. And honestly, being on Jeopardy was a lifelong dream and it was even better than I had anticipated. It was one of the most amazing experiences of my life. 
Tigger, thanks so much for sharing this time with us. We really appreciate you helping us to learn more about Alex Trebek, who will always be a Canadian icon. Keep safe. Absolutely. Thank you, Mike. Take care. Tigger Gerard, London Zone, and did incredibly well on Jeopardy. Going into final Jeopardy, Tigger had the lead, and it was it was a tough question. The, the final question on Jeopardy that day, the largest art theft in U.S. history was at 1.24 a.m. on this date in 1990, while Boston slumbered after partying. And it ended up being... Uh, I believe March 18th. Uh, okay. All right. All right. That's, that's a tough final question, but Tigger had done very, very well. Uh, the crack staff has actually looked through the boards that Tigger had and has not found any Canadian connections that they can see at least right now, but maybe a Canadian question popping up usually, you know, once a week, wouldn't you say, but there may be a Canadian connection that we don't know about. Our next guest usually pulls at least double duty in life. He is one of the smartest and busiest people that I happen to know. And it may have gone into, I don't know, triple duty with the U.S. election going on. Dr. Thomas Cook joins us, Privacy, Ethics, and Internal Threat Assessment Manager at the Center for Advanced Computing and a Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council of Canada postdoctoral fellow at the Surveillance Studies Center, both at Queen's University. He joins us now. Were you able to at least catch up on some sleep over the weekend, maybe? Maybe after it became president? elect Joe Biden? No. <laughs> no, I did not catch up on any sleep. Well, you were quite enthralled in what was taking place, as many of us were probably still that way, as we continue to wait and see how the next few weeks will play out. Dr. Cook, we'll talk privacy in just a moment, but when we look at so much of the talk about, well, this is fixed, and this is engineered, and this is... How closely do you wind up paying attention to that, given what you study on a regular basis? That's a great question, and I had a, a really good conversation about this with a close friend of mine who's a, a friend of, of your shows in the past, Dr. Benjamin Muller at King's University College here in London. And, you know, what we said w- was that we were kind of of two minds over the weekend, right? Like, so the first one is the, the historical significance of what just, just took place, and it is historically significant. Kamala Harris is one of No, I'm going to take that back. She is the best speaker I've ever seen. I used to adore President Obama for being an incredible speaker, and I still do. But her candor, what she represents, her platform ideas, the fact that she's a woman of color finally at the the highest level of, of government is so significant. And on top of that, she's an incredible speaker. And to see the way in which the American population that has otherwise been disenfranchised by four years of awful, awful, intolerant, racist, sexist rhetoric. It was was great to see that they finally found something that they can identify with. It really does feel like a new way forward. But on the other hand, the other mind that I shared with my my friend Ben was that, can, can that much really change? Is it really possible that there is going to be a significant shift in direction? Because uh, as you know from talking to me in the, the past, Mike, the, the president and the VP are they're not 
the most important parts of, of the American machine and the American experience. We still have to contend with elitist politics, and Biden, by all stretches of the imagination, is an elite-level politician and somebody that's very well-funded. So I do take the potential for change at the highest level of government um, as being symbolically significant, but I do have my reservations about um, real fundamental game-changing change on the ground. That's just it. And how many people talked about this going in, that there were two candidates, but it's too bad there wasn't a third because neither one (laughs) seemed to be somebody that you would want to have leading forward for the next four years in the United States. So we will watch very closely what takes place. We've been talking privacy a whole lot, and Mm -hmm. maybe it's time to look to the future as we kind of watch the future of what plays out in the United States, but look to our own future and look at maybe challenges or or even opportunities when it comes to our privacy moving forward. Um, let's start with the challenge side of things. Challenges for privacy as we move forward. What would you pinpoint? One big thing to pay attention to in terms of something that's tangible, that we can really uh, see very clearly is whether or not um, Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act just south of the border is actually going to be repealed. Um, what this section does, Mike, is that it um, supposedly would grant big companies like Facebook and Google immunity from lawsuits over what people post on their websites. And, and this is a huge point of contention. Um, I'm not going to call him president, but Trump has been... Um, very shifty and unpredictable, as we know with pretty well anything. But his position with regards to his business relationships and support with Silicon Valley has been really, really tumultuous. And something that concerns me a bit is that um, President-elect Biden has said that he's um, he's not entirely sure what to do about this. He's he's meant uh, he's he's issued in the past that he's going to repeal this section, which would. Um, potentially take away the ability for these companies to have immunity but it's very unclear about his position with these companies Uh, he's been a a strong advocate for making them more accountable but what happens with this particular section is going to be vitally important and the reason why i think it's important for us as canadians too is because how the white house and the executive level of government get along with massive social media companies is, is definitely going to affect us The most progressive part of the U.S. system in terms of privacy laws is in California. They're innovating like crazy. They're pushing the tech industry to be super, super accountable. So I think it's going to be really important for the White House to also continue developing a really, really strong relationship with legislators and policy uh, creative minds, if you will, inside of California. And again, that's not so clear. Another point that I think is going to be challenging for us is the extent to which um, President Trump's long-standing fight with Google is, is going to continue. Something that he tried to do is file an antitrust lawsuit with Google. And I just don't see that that is going to carry over with the same sentiment when Biden comes in. I, I do think Google needs to be pushed a heck of a lot harder, but it's yet to be seen what's going to happen. And I, I think where this all, all of this, these three points comes to a culminating point for me, Mike, is that Biden and Harris and their administration are assuming the most difficult set of challenges that any new administration has ever faced, as far as I can tell. The economy is worse than what 
uh, Obama lived, the socioeconomic and racial tensions that are an all-time high, the environment, the accusations of fraud, fake news. I mean, they're going to be busy for years trying to undo some of the social damage alone. And I just can't imagine the privacy is going to be at the forefront. So I think we're just going to have to stay on our toes and really pay attention to what happens down there. Dr. Thomas Cook joining us, Privacy, Ethics, and Internal Threat Assessment Manager at the Center for Advanced Computing, as well as the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council of Canada Postdoctoral Fellow at the Surveillance Studies Center at Queen's University. So if those are the challenges that maybe privacy is not right up at the top of the list, what are some of the opportunities that maybe exist in terms of privacy? That's a really good question, and I I think it's a bit too early to tell, to be honest with you, Mike. I've mulled this over quite a bit, and um, the one thing that I keep coming back to is is the influence of what's happening in California. If you can imagine the most progressive minds in, in the continent when it comes to keeping companies accountable, that's where it is. That's where all of that is taking place. And a lot of the influence that they're picking up in turn comes from the general data protection rule in the European Union, or what most people know as GDPR. I think what the pandemic is doing um, for global surveillance is really showing us that the health data sector is the new frontier, really, for big data data analytics and mining. Um, I think (laughs) you wouldn't be incorrect in assuming that um, health data or medical data is something like a no-fly zone for most corporations. And what's been really interesting in this past uh, six months, Mike, is that we've seen hedge funds and, and from all around the globe pour billions and billions and billions of dollars into trying to access health data. It's been happening like crazy here in Ontario alone. If the private sector has a way in on that industry into accessing those data flows, the potential for further profit generation is insurmountable. And so too is the potential for extreme privacy violations. It's something that makes me extremely nervous. So in terms of possibilities, I would like to think that the CCLA, that's the Canadian Civil Liberties Association, will continue working closely with the Electronic Frontier Foundation, the American Civil Liberties Union, to keep investigating this relationship. How close is Google and Apple going to become with these kinds of hedge funds? How trans- transparent are they going to be with these kinds of investments? How much money will be publicly awarded by the U.S. federal government and the Canadian government in these kinds of start- startups? And how much visibility is the population going to have when it comes to these companies profiting off of your health records when you go to the hospital? I think that's where we really need to look. If we're going to find any inspiration and invigoration, it's going to be holding those kinds of things back from happening. Yeah, I mean, it, and we've talked about this on so many different occasions it is great to have everything that you need to know about your own health right there in one place, have it accessible so that we have less risk in a number of areas in terms of maybe medications or treatments or what have you. But at the same time, when you've got it there, what is to prevent other companies from gaining access to it, from distributing it? And what does that do to things like insurance or mm-hmm. all of those things get rolled in, don't they? Very well said. And you know, Mike, the the thing that holds them back usually is supposed to be legislation, right? It's supposed to be laws. Like, for example, in Ontario, 
uh, the Personal Health Information Protection Act, or um, what we more uh, intimately know as PHIPAA these years, these days, I should say. Um, and, and the problem, Mike, is when you have an emergency situation, like with this global pandemic, um, you have governments that need to invoke Emergency Measures Act for better or for worse. I'm not somebody that usually uh, agrees with invoking any of these things because the devil is always in the details. And what we've seen in Ontario is that PHIPAA had core aspects that were completely rewritten with no media coverage. It was not discussed that the definition of anonymization inside of the Personal Health Information Protection Act was covered. There was no discussion about this whatsoever. And what it's doing is it's changing fundamentally the relationship between health data custodians, so anybody that holds health records, and the government. And if the government isn't transparent about the private sector partners they bring in to build new machine learning systems to study COVID, there's a potential that foreign investors, foreign tech startups can access this data. And we just have to simply trust that it's going to be anonymized properly. If you're a white person, that makes sense, I guess. I think that's something that's a little bit risky, less risky for you. But if you're a black woman in Canada, if you're a member of a First Nations community on a reserve that is in a remote area of Ontario, it doesn't matter at all how much personal information is removed or obfuscated. It's going to be very easy to pinpoint particular people because the system is designed to serve a particular population, and that population is predominantly white. So unless the government is really transparent with these things, Mike, I, I think there's a lot to be concerned about for sure. Well, thank you for keeping tabs on this. Thanks for putting it into easier-to-understand language than sometimes it exists in. We really appreciate the time, Dr. Cook. It's always my pleasure. Thanks very much for having me, Mike. That is Dr. Thomas Cook, Privacy, Ethics, and Internal Threat Assessment Manager at the Center for Advanced Computing and a Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council of Canada Postdoctoral Fellow at the Surveillance Studies Center at Queen's University. And just some ideas on that. Privacy may not be high on the list of things to do and undo for the Joe Biden administration, and yet it is something that because of the companies that tend to be running the show now, whether it's Google, whether it's Apple, whether it's Amazon, it needs to be somewhere on the list. You've been listening to the London Live podcast. Catch the show live on weekdays from 1 to 3.